Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. On the dedication page of Swami Kriyananda's book, The Path, appears the following account. A, a group of Paramahansa Yogananda's disciples had gone with him to see a movie about the life of Dev, a great saint of medieval India. Afterwards, they gathered and listened to the master explain certain subtler aspects of that inspiring story. A young man in the group mentioned another film he had seen years earlier in India about the life of Mirabai, a famous woman saint. If you'd seen that movie, he exclaimed, you wouldn't even have liked this one. The guru rebuked him. Why make such comparisons? The lives of great saints manifest in various ways the same one God. The Bible contains a similar account in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9. And John said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. The more central a truth, the greater the number of contexts in which it can be applied. Truth is like a pure white light containing within itself the full spectrum of the rainbow. Let no one tell you what your path to God ought to be. Many are the paths. Select your own according to the <clears throat> dictates of your own nature, no matter how out of step that puts you with other people. Sri Krishna, in the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, states, trying even uns unsuccessfully to fulfill one's own spiritual duty, dharma, is better than pursuing successfully the duties of others. Better death itself in the pursuance of one's own duties. The pursuance of another's duties is fraught with spiritual danger. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, oh. Welcome again, everybody, and we're uh, very pleased to be with you, to be able to share with you. My name is Naiswami Jaya, and with me today is my wife, Naiswami Devi. Today's topic is Many Are the Pathways to God, and I'd like to begin by doing a reading or from Whispers from Eternity. This is demand to travel by the one highway to realization. Our one Father, 
We are traveling by many true paths toward thee, thy one abode of light. Show us the one highway of common realization. Where all bypaths of theological beliefs meet. Make us feel that the diverse religions are branches of thy one tree of truth. Bless us that we enjoy the intuition tested, ripe, luscious fruits of self-knowledge hanging from the many branches of true scriptural teachings. In thy one temple of silence, we all sing to thee a chorus of many-voiced religions. Teach us to chant in harmony with thy love's manifold expressions that our chorus of souls rouse thee to break thy vow of cosmic silence and lift us onto thy lap of universal, immortal understanding. Many are the pathways to lead to truth, and many are the pathways that lead to bliss. Many are the pathways to lead to peace. Many are the pathways to lead that lead to self-realization. And I think it could be said that there are as many pathways as souls, because each one of us is traveling toward the same goal, but each one of us is endowed with a very unique pathway to follow. It's our individual karma. No two souls are alike, and no two souls will find that pathway back to God. No two souls will find their way back to truth, except in their own unique way, because we each have our own individual karma. When one path cannot really be said, to be better or worse than the other. I guess you could say in the sense one path might take a little longer than another, but in the end, we all end up at the same place. And in a sense, you know, the understanding of that truth is something that is now becoming much more current in the world at large. The sense of universality of religion, but it hasn't always been that way. There's, we know, looking back, there's been periods of discord and periods of conflict, and I don't think we're finished with that. Sectarianism, my way is better than your way, and that competitive nature between religions and doctrines and beliefs is, is going to be with us for a while, but we know, and the Masters have reassured us, that we're in a new age where we have an ability to look forward to the potential of this universal vision that express, is being expressed by Master is going to come true. I think it was uh, Swami Vivekananda who said back in the late 19th century, he said, it's, certainly it is true to be, it's good to be born in a religion, but perhaps not so good to die in one. In other words, the religion, has its place. I suppose even being a member of one sect versus another sect is helpful to a person at a certain point in their spiritual evolution. We need to be able to have some confinement. We need to be able to be taught basic truths. But inevitably, if we are going to 
evolve as seekers, we need to ultimately develop to that point where we can transcend the boundaries of those narrow dictums that are passed down and shared with one another through the name of religion. Now, this isn't to say, and I want to reiterate that, that it's not good to actually have reli outward religion in, in, like we do. These have proven to be, people can remember the negative impacts of that, and I've mentioned some, the sectarianism, but also they've been helpful in the age that we've passed through. They've been uplifting. Organization has its purpose. Organization has its place. Formal religion has its place, but we know that deep down, that no matter what religion outward we belong to, an organization belonging to this church, temple, or mosque is not going to guarantee us to be able to reach the goal that we're all looking for. We have to ultimately transcend those boundaries. Now we look even here. We live in a wonderful environment. So all religions provide some environment a positive environment, just as we have here at Ananda. We have a wonderful environment here, have an opportunity for satsang. We have an opportunity to get together like we're doing here this morning. We have an opportunity here, particularly in Ananda Village, to go outside, beautiful environment. There are pluses to getting together in, as groups. We support one another. We inspire one another. We, we can uplift one another. But I think we all know that only goes so far. Ultimately, each one of us must, as Paramahansa Yogananda said, individually, we must each make love to God. And that comes down to each individual one. So it's a benefit to live in situations that have some commonality. It takes us up and here even at, at the village. It takes us up and provides us wonderful opportunity if we take advantage of it, you see? Master said about self-realization fellowship on uh, Mount Washington, there are many rats and mice here on this hilltop. They're not finding God. And just the mere presence to be a member of a church, to be a member of a congregation, can be extremely helpful, but that alone is not going to provide the answer. It all is going to come back to you and me individually making love to God. Now, this understanding, I think, is becoming more current. Uh, it's going to take a little bit of time, I'm sure, for it to become widely understood because the organizational side of religion is still very strong and has a lot of momentum. But we have entered into an age or you could say it's predicted, the masters foresaw the age that we're moving into, out of Kali Yuga and into an age where religion itself is being seen and is going to be even further seen in the years to come as a more in a more universal perspective. And our masters came specifically to introduce that concept, which is others are introducing as well, to reinforce that concept, but also particularly to introduce certain principles demonstrated by their teachings and by their life. 
And I want to discuss that a little bit today because there was one of our masters is particularly significant in that regard. And today, being the 26th of September, is the day we commemorate and remember the Mahasamadhi of Lahiri Mahashai. And in four days, on the 30th of September, we're going to celebrate his uh, birthday. It's an anniversary of his birthday, born in 1828 and passed in Mahasamadhi in 1895. Now, those are very significant years or an era, you might say. They encompass a very significant period of time. Think about this. 1828. What was it like in 1828? Very different. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, you know your history well enough to know uh, before electricity. Yeah, I mean, electricity, not before electricity. Before electricity was useful uh, and uh, found out about and put to use. Locomotion of various sorts. The attitudes that went with that very different time. And he was born, Lehiti was born into that environment. But when he passed, it was 18... 95. Now, very different, of course, from today, but very different in another way also from 1828. It had become more, he was now entering into what we would consider the modern world. And he had transitioned that period of time. And Lady Mahasha was a particular, you could say, a transitional figure amongst our masters, Sri Teshwar and Babaji and, and, uh, and uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, but he was a transitional figure who, who bridged those two. And you could say he opened the door for and was instrumental of introducing into the world a different understanding of what religion truly was about. And not only philosophically, but we know, of course, he was instrumental. And the, instru the instrument for introducing the techniques to give individuals a firsthand experience of God, the, the techniques and practice of Kriya Yoga. And he came in at that time. And some of the, I think it was important to look back and to remember there was a significance to the fact that Lahiri Mahashai did not meet his guru until he was 33 years old. He, in a typically person comes, they would probably, in the nature of things, a great master, you would think that they would come at an early age, like Master Metri Yukteswar at an, at an early age, but it was at the age of 33. Now, by that time, Lahiri Mahashai had been firmly established in his worldly life, outward service of life, an accountant in Varanasi, then known as Benares. And he was married, he had a family. And it was significant that he, a great master who is said to be an avatar in his own right, in a sense of a, a fully liberated soul, was blinded in a way. A, 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 a curtain had been drawn upon his conscious memory of that, in, and he was awakened by Babaji at the age of uh, 33, and 
as a person who was fully established in his life, and we know from reading that he wanted to stay with Babaji in the Himalayas, where that introduction took place, but he was not allowed. He said, no, your role is to go back. Now, we, we think that as, as Lahiri Mahashai because he was a householder, but it was broader than that because there was a principle involved in this. He was a householder. Yes, that's true. And he was, and in that age particularly, that would have been in the 19, 1861, in particularly in India, there was a certain expectation for somebody who was a great yogi would be not a householder. Householders had their other duties. Society was stratified in, in its classifications in the caste. But here he was, a fully liberated soul as a householder. But he was not a householder. That wasn't his definition. Certainly his self-definition was that. He was a yogi who happened to be a householder. And that's what he was, uh, you could say, saying through his life. He was a householder who happened to be a, he was a yogi who happened to be a householder. He was an accountant, yes, but he was a yogi who happened to be an accountant. He was a yogi who happened to have a family and children. He was a, he was a yogi who happened to have various worldly duties in life. That was, you could say, the message that he was bringing. He was not in a religion, in a sense. He was not bound by that religion of worldly expectations of of a caste, creed, status in life, of what he was doing outwardly. It was inwardly what he was that was the primary. And however it was expressed. And he gave through that example a message that, is carried, that did carry forward from him. You can be, and this is what he, he taught his, his disciples, be who you are in life and spiritualize that and be a yogi, practice Kriya, and through Kriya Yogi, the Kriya Yoga, spiritualize the situation in which you find yourself. And you could say this harkens back in more modern times to what Sister Gyanamata said. He says, how can you expect to find God if you can't find him in the, in the situation in which the circumstances in which he has placed you. So in whichever situation our karma and our outward dharma has placed us, that is where we will find God. And you can see this theme even in Master's life. He met his guru, but he wanted to go to the Himalayas. Even after he had met his guru, he was hearkening, because if I go to the Himalayas, that's where I will be a yogi. I will find the yogis. That's where a yogi would be. And Sri Teshwar, of course, dissuaded him. Mountains won't give you what you're looking for. And as it turned out, Master kept this, uh, this dream alive, this fantasy alive, until he met Ram Gopal Muzumdar, who, the sleepless saint, we read in the autobiography of a yogi, who said, it is your guru who is going to, because he, he had asked Ram, Master did, Mukunda at that time, asked Ram Gopal to give him samadhi, and he said, that's not for me to do, that's your guru. Your guru is 
the Himalayas where you're, where you're seeking. And, he, and then Paul very practically asked him, don't you have somewhere in your home where you could go and be, meditate, be quiet, get away from things? And Master said yes, he had a little attic room that he could retreat to. And Ram Gopal said, let that be your cave. Let that be your sacred mountain. And there you will find God. So there he, you know, of course, at the feet of Sri Yukteswar. And the principle here was not that Lahiri Mahashai was uh, the, the message of the householder. If we expand that, it was a message of circumstances are not what define us. Outward circumstances are not what defines us. In, it's inwardly what defines us. And so he would advise his disciples. He says the Hindu should meditate four times a day. The Muslim should do namaz four times a day. The Christian should get on his knees and pray four times a day. But they need not abandon their outward ways, their outward religion. So consequently, if we expand that thought, an accountant do his books four times a day or, or, or be the best accountant you can be. Be a shopkeeper. That's your dharma. That's your dharma. Be that as best as you can be. Be a yogi, in other words. And what you do outwardly, what does it matter? It does not matter. It's simply details determined by your karmic inclinations and the guidance of God. Because when you make that decision to seek God, that magnetism will guide your footsteps to the right course in everything you do. And it's that inward commitment of inward identity of, or you could say it, I'm a disciple. That's my identity. I'm a Kriya Yogi. That's my identity. I'm a lover of God. That's my identity. And what happens outside God? That's your business. I'm going to do it as best I can. And in the process of that, we fulfill what Christ said in the Bible. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all other, these other things will be added onto you. And so this is how Lahiri, he personified that. There was a quote I wanted to, uh, to, from the autobiography that expressed a little of his life. He says, unknown, Master writes, to society in general, a great spiritual renaissance began to flow from a remote corner of Benares. Just as the fragrance of flowers cannot be suppressed, so Lahiri Mahashai quietly, living as an ideal householder, could not hide his inner glory. Slowly, from every part of India, the devotee bees sought the divine nectar of the liberated master. And so consequently, this is one of the principles too that Lahiri Mahashai said. He says, if your identity is correctly placed, in this case, let's say, I'm a yogi, I'm a disciple, lover of God, everything outwardly begins to work because the magnetism of that is asking, in that magnetic aura of that commitment puts into motion 
all of those things that will allow you to fulfill that identification in the right way and in the right time. So that's what our job is, is the path is individually for each one of us. We can't look hither and thither and yawn of, oh, he's doing that, maybe I should do that. He's doing that, maybe I should do that. He's a, he's a monk, maybe I should do that. Or he's a householder, maybe I should do that. Because here he was, it's neither or it's all. It's whatever our particular dharma is. Now, interestingly, Lahiri said, you could, I'm putting it in a little bit more common language. What he said is, just be normal. <laughs> Outwardly. But abnormal within. Abnormal in the sense of, what others probably are not doing. They're not paying attention to that. But just be appropriate to the situation. And so he did not encourage people to, to drop what they were doing. And in fact, he was against that. He was against people changing their outward uh, appearance, their outward activities, their outward dharma, for the sake of following the spiritual path. He says, you don't need to do that. What you need, that's the outward, it's superficial. What you need to change is inside. And you do that strongly enough, and outwardly God will begin to change the world around you to conform, to allow you to do that. If, you're, if, you're dev, if your love for God is strong enough. So approach life from the inside, not from the outside. But there was an interesting little story uh, of a devotee of Kalahiri Mahasaya, a disciple. His name was Bhutnath. And uh, Bhutnath was a, oh, you might say he was a non-dualist. Uh, he was an intellectual type, but he was devoted. But he's intellectual, and so he didn't want to follow customs, religious customs. Uh, you know, I, I'm not into that. You know, just like Master, when he went, remember when he goes to Tarakeshwar, and he sees people prostrating at the stone there, at the Murti stone, and he says, you know, why are people doing that? And he, of course, he pays the price for that and learns his lesson one crochet more. But in the same way, this is, Bhutnath was of that temperament. And so when he, he would come, he lived outside of Benares. And when he came to Benares, uh, he went to Lahiri Mahashai. And Lahiri Mahashai asked him at first, he says, well, Bhutnath, did you take because this was the tradition then, and it's still to some degree the tradition. Did you take your holy dip in the Ganges? Bhutanath says, no, no, sir, I, you know. And then, did you then, after taking your holy dip in the Ganges, did you go to the Vishwanath temple to, to uh, take darshan of Lord Vishwanath, which is the major temple in, uh, in uh, Benares, in Varanasi, and, and particularly more so in those days. And, uh, he's, and um, Bishnath, Bishnath says, uh, no, sir, I have come to you, the living Vishvanath, to take my darshan of you. That sounded like a nice answer, you know, very <laughs> clever. And uh, Lahiri Mahashai says, uh-uh, no. First, you must, you must do the appropriate thing as you've come here to, uh, to, uh, uh, to Varanasi to see me, and then, then come. So 
being a disciple, Bhutanath uh, went and he went to the Ganges. He took a dip in the Ganges and bathed there. Then he, he went to the Vishwanath temple and he's, he went into uh, where there's a big murti of uh, Lord Vishwanath and uh, he went to pray there and, take, and, and bow. He did, he bowed and took darshan. And he looked up and he saw the, in, instead of Lord Vishwanath sitting there on the altar in the Murti, it was an image of Lahirimashai sitting there instead. And of course he was flabbergasted by this. And he went back to uh, Lahirimashai and Lahirimashai and said, I saw you there and there. And he, said, and he just smiled. Lahirimashai just smiled because he had, he had come to take darshan of the living Vishwanath, but he had to do it in the right way. And I think there's a message here for all of us is because uh, we need to be, as Swami always was, appropriate to the situation. What is the situation? You know, when you're young, I, when I was younger, I was not very appropriate to a lot of things. Ah, you know, why that, why that, and, and discarding old, the old ways and wanting to do something new ways. Lahiri didn't advise that. He says, do what's appropriate to your situation. It doesn't matter. And if it's do what's right, just be you who you are, but inwardly follow the road that is going to awaken you within practice Kriya Yoga. And as I started this discussion, I said, well, you could say that every, there's as many pathways as there are souls, because we're each individual. But then again, I think you could take it the other way as well. And there's only, and this too is what Lady Mahashai taught, there's only one pathway. There's one pathway. And yes, it's manifests in many different ways, perhaps. But that inner pathway is that pathway to God. And Master expressed it very forthrightly when he said the pathway to God is through our very own nervous system. In other words, the pathway to God is that process of yoga, which, which we practice when we practice Kriya Yoga, is to withdraw that energy from the life force into the deep spine and uplift our consciousness upward into the infinite through the spinal centers and into the light of God. And this is the universal pathway of which all outward pathways are somewhat, uh, I don't know if symbolic is the right word, but representative or trying to bring us to that one pathway, but it's that inner pathway that all of us follow in one fashion or another to find God. We, there's no other way. We were created in a certain way and we find our back to the source of our creation in a certain way. And this is what one of the messages of Lahiri Mahashai. He says, practice Kriya Yoga. And now he was saying that we're here today as Kriya Bonds, Kriya Yogis. This is what he was saying. Solve all problems with Kriya Yoga. And what did he mean by that? 
He says, solve all problems. Approach your problems, not from the outside, but approach your problems, those things you want to accomplish in life, approach them from the inside. Change your consciousness, if to say it just easily, change your consciousness, and then you'll find that what was a problem, somehow it's not quite the same anymore. It looks different because you've come at it and you've raised your consciousness and according to the level of your consciousness, you'll see your environment. And so what he was broadly saying coming back is the time is here. The time has come when we're not to be ruled by outward circumstances and to be slaves to the whims of our karma, to the whims of what's happening outside of ourselves, that we have the power through the practice of Kriya, through the upliftment of our own consciousness to take charge of our lives and not be under the rule of a cosmic dictator. If, and again, coming back to what I said about us being here, we choose to use what has been given to us. And that's all responsibility has to come back to us. And this is the message that Lahiri Mahashai, among many, I'm sure, has passed to us. He came at that transitional time when society itself is going through a stage transitioning. He was, he was born in that transitional stage, that Sunday between Kali and Dwapara Yuga, but now, and he took it to the end of that, and now fully into this age of Dwapara, he transitioned that. And, and from that little room in Varanasi, and many of you have been there, it's open one day now a year on his uh, on, uh, uh, Guru Purnima, you can go there to Varanasi and visit. And if you have an opportunity, I recommend you do. A long line of people, but, but uh, they, uh, uh, from all walks of life, come. From all over India, they come on that day to take darshan of his home there. And, it, and you go in, and there's a little sitting room. And when you read the autobiography of a yogi, you think, oh, yes, that sitting room, there was crowds of people there. No. It wasn't a big room. It was probably 10 by 12, maybe 10 by 14, something like that. A very, very modern. You could sit maybe a dozen people in there. And that's where he sat in samadhi, day and night, not sleeping. He was there. And the devotees would come. And through Lahiri Mahashai, many, many advanced souls, Jivan Muktas, Paramuktas, became his disciple and through that influence went out into the world and fulfilled that there was, that as Master said, the prophecy that these teachings of Kriya Yoga would one day reach people in every land on this earth and that's come to pass. And even in, although he was very modest in outward circumstances. There wasn't that many people, but they were of high quality. He predicted that, yes, 50 years after his passing in 1895, the world would come to know about his life. And it, it wasn't, of, you might say, it wasn't 
his will for that. He just, he wasn't, he didn't care about outward fame or those sorts of things. But that too came to pass through the autobiography of a yogi that Master wrote and was released in 46. So that prophecy too was fulfilled. And this was Lahiri's influence. It was a world work, a world that will, a work that will be looked back upon in ages to come as perhaps the most significant thing that was happening in the world today at this time. This introduction of these principles that the keys to the kingdom of God that is within us have been given into our hands. But I come back, if we use them. And that's our choice. It's always our choice if we use them. We've been given a blessing. We've been given an environment. We've been given satsang of a sangha. We've been given everything. Will we use them? I hope so. Om Guru.